0: Science Drives and Wellness Steers, season two. I'm your host, Allie. When I was in school, the most unhelpful and frequent thing I was told was she'd do so great if she just focused. The thing I never heard was how to focus. So I've dedicated my career to helping parents and educators do better. Moving from just pay attention to let me teach you how to pay attention, Let me teach you how to harness the superpowers of your brain. I've been the clinical director and therapist for Magnificent Minds for over a decade and have been supporting teachers, parents, and therapists of neurodivergent kiddos for even longer. Professionally, I'm admittedly an eclectic mix with formal training in counseling psychology and behavioral sciences. I don't fit neatly into a box, which I guess is something I have in common with the spectacularly unique kiddos I support. I combine my love of science with my connection to the pursuit of wellness and find myself at the midpoint of behavioral science and mental health looking through the lens of neurodiversity. I'm a hippie at heart, avoiding pseudoscience, gluten, and ableism. I'm a political advocate and a passionate writer who is not afraid to have hard conversations. I'm a sometimes all over the place, not always put together mom of three, entrepreneur, and wife who was voted most likely to speak out of turn in just about every year of elementary school, which surprises no one who knows me. You can look up my business at MagnificentMinds.ca or do a full social media stalking on Instagram at MagMinds, on TikTok at TherapyMagMinds, on my blog, of course, in my podcast, or even sign up to receive monthly updates via my newsletter. But don't worry, spam isn't my jam. Thanks for taking a bit of time and joining my community. I look forward to going on this journey with you. Listening to this episode back, I am filled with all the feels. Talking about self regulation is my jam. And if you don't believe me now, you will definitely believe me when this episode is over. I have a few openings in my schedule to work one on one with parents in self regulation for themselves and their kiddos. If you are looking to work with someone one on one to build these skills in your family, slide into my DMs or send me an email and we'll get on a call and talk about whether or not it's a good fit. So today our topic is going to be mental health related. It's going to be self-regulation related and specifically self-regulation through the lens of self-reg and autism. So how do we teach self-regulation to an autistic population? What are the points of consideration when it comes to, you know, unpacking all of the must-do steps, prioritizing goals, understanding, you know, how do we teach it, and really just optimizing outcomes for, you know, folks in the autism community and really pursuing mental health through, you know, teaching self-regulation strategies. So I posted something today on Instagram. It was a reel and it basically said, you know, what do you need to know about teaching self-regulation in an autistic population? And the one thing you need to know is that you need to teach self-regulation before you know, you start to be inconvenienced by behavior and you need to teach it not because you're inconvenienced by behavior. So we don't teach, you know, our autistic kids self-regulation skills because that makes our life easier, right? We teach them self-regulation skills because it makes their life easier. And the reason that I posted this reel and that I made this reel is because I see a lot of the time, you know, parents come to me and they say, you know, Ally. My kids' behavior is a real problem. I can't handle it anymore. They need self-regulation strategies. And while the two may be related, ultimately, we teach self-regulation strategies to, you know, improve the outcome of the kiddos' experience, their worldview, their life, and not to improve, you know, our life and and worldview and experience. Of course, you know, when our kids have better coping skills and better self-regulation, that makes everything easier for everyone because we're all well, we're all balanced, we're all keeping it together. But ultimately, we don't teach self-regulation skills to benefit the teacher, to benefit the parent, to benefit the peers. We teach self-regulation skills. We teach all skills to benefit the kiddo. So with that said, let's talk a little bit about mental health in, you know, the neurodivergent community and the autistic uh, community. Um, Bear with me because I am recording this for a video for YouTube so you can catch it there and I am also recording it for a podcast. So if my eyes are darting all over the place in this video, that's why if, um, you know, you're listening to this on a podcast and you are feeling like I'm referencing something that you don't see, um, you're not. It's just that I am splitting my attention and possibly not doing it that well. Okay. Okay. So mental health, you know, it's often overlooked in the autistic population. Why? Um, You know, we tend to focus so much on early intervention. Early intervention is amazing. It's fantastic. Evidence-based. Love it. Having said that, you know, we often don't include mental health uh, supports, training, teaching in early intervention. You know, we focus on those core, you know, impairments within the triad of impairments as, you know, we know them and love them. You know, your social communication, all of that. And so we tend to, you know, see a lot in the media and see a lot of information and resources about early intervention through the lens of addressing the, you know, triad of impairments. And I would argue that, you know, a component of, you know, need within the triad of impairment. So within the social needs, the communication needs, and even the repetitive and restrictive behavior needs come from a need for, you know, mental health supports and ability to self regulate you know your ability to appraise social situations and social conventions um, you know that affects your ability to you know be self-aware um, your ability to communicate that affects your ability to communicate your needs from an emotional um, and coping mechanism standpoint your you know repetitive and or restrictive behaviors and interests may impact as well you know your ability to cope your willingness to try new things um, you know all of these things that sort of Together create, you know, a need for a really good self-regulation plan. Having said all of this, you know, we tend to see all of this early intervention talk and you know availability of services, and we don't tend to see, you know, a lot of availability of services and mental health or self-regulatory, you know, nature within the autistic community specifically, and you know, perhaps even more so, you know, within the community of you know folks who support autistic kids. There are some services as kids get a little older, you know, into their teens and even adulthood, you know, to support mental health and self-regulation within an autistic population. But, like, they are also few and far between, you know, there, there is a lack in, in all age brackets within, you know, our capacity as an industry to support autistic folks in, you know, self-regulation, mental health, all the good stuff. Um... The truth is that it can be difficult to find these resources on self-regulation. You know, there are well-intentioned professionals out there. You know, they reach out to me all the time on social media or through email and they say, Allie, I want to know how to support self-regulation in my autistic kiddos much better. Where do I go? What do I do? And short of giving them resources I've created from bottom up, which, you know, I do, um, there isn't a lot out there when it comes to how to support you know, autistic folks with development of self-regulation skills. Um, There are some, you know, and I know them and many of them I've tried. And there are, you know, even fewer of the ones that are out there that are evidence-based and rooted in, you know, principles of psychology. Um, There are some nice collaborative um, curriculums or programs out there that, that sort of set out to target self regulation. um, How successful are they? Well, in my experience, it really depends and it all comes down to how you teach it. So you can have a really great, you know, self regulation curriculum. um, But if you don't have a really effective plan for teaching those skills and then generalizing and extending those skills, um, those curriculums only go so far. Likewise, you know, you can have a really great math curriculum. um, But if you don't have a really good plan for teaching math, um, you know, that's rooted in science and skill building and, you know, all the good things we know we need when it comes to a good quality educational program um, it misses the mark ultimately our autistic kids are not going to benefit from a cookie cutter approach so we can't just get a curriculum you know implement it as is without that really good systematic individualized teaching plan okay so you know that cookie cutter approach or that you know curriculum that you have that you know everyone says is really great that's awesome but you then need to know how to unpack it and individualize it and make it meaningful for your kids specifically otherwise you're just doing you know Train and hope, where you just train them and hope that it sticks. Um, spoiler, it won't. Um, so there's so much discussion, like I said, about you know early intervention in autism, you know, and it leaves the mental health, the self-regulation piece largely untouched. Um, but yet there's a ton of research to support that we can actually get ahead of the need to rely so heavily on consequence-based strategies, um, you know, punishment and even reinforcement systems, if we focus on proactive strategies like actively pursuing self-regulation. Okay. How do we do this? Through direct teaching, through coaching, through skill generalization. Okay. So using the principles that we know and love when it comes to, you know, the science of learning and how we know most human brains, you know, do the best when it comes to, you know, applying and learning and acquiring all these new skills. We apply that, you know, at an individual level and adapt it to the needs of our specific, you know, learner, whether they are vocal, non-vocal. You know, have strengths in visual skills, um, you know, strengths in receptive language, expressive language, whatever it is. All of this matters and all of this plays a huge part in how we roll out a program, whether or not, you know, it is coming from a curriculum or it is something that we are designing bottom up. Um, so with behavior and behavior therapy and behavioral services at the forefront of therapeutic interventions for autistic folks, we're kind of missing the mark if we're not assessing the why behind the way, the, the reason that people behave the way they do. So behaviorism, it gets this, you know, it talks about function, it talks about the meaning or the intended meaning behind why folks do what they do. My personal, you know, professional, personal and professional stance is that you can't begin to understand the meaning if you are doing that separate from understanding the emotions, the feelings, the internal experiences of the person you know, with autism, without autism, the human, Um, you know, we need to see both. We need to see both that function-based approach where we are understanding behavior insofar as what it achieves for the person, what is the end game or what are they trying to get or, you know, get out of. Um, We need to know that information and then we also need to, you know, align that with what we know about their, you know, emotional needs, their, you know, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, all of these things that are less quantifiable. Um, you know, we, we want to know the why, you know, beyond just the function uh, as a communication attempt. So let's say we're, you know, we're going to interpret all of our behavior um, in a very behavioral, behavioral science way where we say that there's, you know, four or perhaps five, depending on your school of thought, functions of behavior. So that's great. You know, we're going to go back to, is it a sensory behavior? Is it an escape You know, attention, avoidance, you know, tangible to get access, or is it a control behavior? We want to know all of this, but we also want to combine this with what we know about, you know, the feelings and what, you know, okay, so it's an escape behavior, let's say, if we're going to categorize it behaviorally. Why? What feeling you know is eliciting this response? Is this an anxiety response? Is this a fear response? Why is this person seeking to avoid? It's not enough just to know the function. You also need to know why, so that you can then plan, you know, an intervention or a support plan that addresses the why. Is the why a skill gap? You know, I'm avoiding this behavior because I don't have the skills. Is the why you know? something that has to do with fear phobia. You know, am I avoiding this because I'm afraid of something, the sound, the lights, the pressure, whatever it is, these are all things that are much less quantifiable. And we need to look at both the function and then also, you know, what is at the root cause of that function? Um, so that is, you know, where we start when it comes to thinking about what is this behavior communicating. And that is, is a bit of a departure from the normal behavioral route, which would say, you know, stick to the functions. You can make all of the environmental manipulations you need to based on knowing the function. And while that may be true, it is also true that, you know, all humans have emotions and all humans have previously lived experiences, you know, histories um, that affect how their behavior patterns develop. And if we start, you know, let's say going in with what we call... Um, and behavioral intervention say an extinction plan where you know oh that is an escape behavior let's say they're trying to get out of that thing so you know the intervention plan will be extinction where we no longer let that work let's say we ignore the behavior and follow through that may temporarily address the issue but if we are not looking at the emotion piece the thought piece the you know what is why right why are they avoiding that behavior it's true that we may be able to temporarily shape it and you know stop it in the setting but it's not going to change long term or is it going to, you know, nor is it going to teach coping mechanisms for another time that a situation like this occurs. And, you know, we've essentially said to this, you know, child or this person, um, you know, you're coping mechanism, avoidance or whatever it is, let's say, you know, they hit you to avoid. So your coping mechanism in order to avoid of hitting me to get out of it is not going to work anymore. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you what will work, number one. And number two, I'm also not going to look to see, you know, why, what what's going on and give you an opportunity to communicate that or at least be curious about how that, you know, how that happened or what I might have done to trigger something in you, you know, that makes you feel unsafe, um, you know, unsupported, um, incapable, all of those kinds of things that, of course, have, you know, a bearing on your ability to perform or do whatever it is that you're trying to do from drink a cup of coffee to, you know, do your taxes to, you know, pull up your pants if you're in the bathroom Um Much of the root of these gaps in services, um, you know, within, you know, early intervention come from this tendency to rely on what is observable. So we might presume that mental health needs don't exist because we can't see them, um, you know, they're internal. And autistic folks can struggle with communication. As a result of that, their likelihood of disclosure of these kinds of experiences is extremely low. You know, they might not know that they're feeling anxious. They might not know that they're feeling worried or that they're feeling, you know, scared or that they're feeling angry. They might not have the words or know the words um, or even really know, you know, have the... Have the self awareness to be able to articulate and even identify it. They might just know, I don't like this feeling and I'm gonna act in this way when I feel this feeling. Um, In short, if we don't know what to look for, you know, because let's say we don't see an observable indicator of anxiety, or, you know, we have a client who's masking and, and, you know, masking being, you know, suppressing, you know, suppressing what you're feeling or thinking or want to do in order to appear. Um, like you have it together, or like you're neurotypical, or like you are indistinguishable from your peers, we're missing those, you know, we're we're not even given the opportunity to see anything observable. And if we don't recognize that there could be something going on that isn't observable, um, which there obviously is, because we all have, you know, internal events, we all have thoughts, we all have things we think but would not say. Um, And if we don't recognize that our clients, that our kids, you know, that the people that we support... Have that too, then we're really, you know, we're missing the mark when it comes to how to best support them. From the standpoint of developing, you know, developing the self-awareness to know what those feelings are to, you know, at any level, right? And, and we're talking about, you know, like we're talking about all all kids here. We're talking about various levels of communication. You don't need to be a speaking person to, you know, develop self-regulation skills, to develop self-awareness. You know, you are, you know, you are the entirety of your experience and whether or not you are speaking is not, you know, is not the only thing that, that, you know, sort of, Tips the scale as to whether we can teach self-regulation. Absolutely not. All humans can, you know, learn self-regulation, self-awareness, um, and you know, to, to the extent that it's that it's meaningful for them, you know, have the opportunity to participate in coping mechanisms that bring them closer to a state of relaxation or a state of stimulation or whatever it is that they want. The other thing that's important to note here too, since I'm on this little tangent, is that what's comfortable for me is calm. Okay, that's because. I spend a lot of time in an anxious state. So what's co- most comfortable for me is to be calm and not anxious. But if let's say I have a client whose most comfortable state is to be, you know, what I would consider a little bit overstimulated. That's how they feel the best. And we have to recognize that and respect that. And we have to when we are teaching self-regulation, embed that in our teaching principles and, you know, hierarchies, which I'll get into you know, a little bit later on in the episode. But We need to be mindful that the way we perceive and experience emotions, feelings, thoughts may not be the way our clients experience emotions, feelings, thoughts. So let's not go in and universally assume that, you know, everybody's quote unquote baseline or, you know, level one, like, let's say a regular state of being is calm because that might not be the case. You know, someone might be much more comfortable spending much more of their time in what would feel to me as a little overstimulated. Um, And, you know, that could be somebody who's sensory seeking or who, you know, really just does the best when there's maximum sensory input. You know, on the other hand, there could be somebody who's sensory avoidant, perhaps even more so than me, and they might, you know, be their calmest or their, their best, you know, quote unquote calmest, because that's, again, that's that's a relative term. They might be their baseline or their happiest when they are understimulated, um, you know, no noise, no interaction, no um, lights, that kind of thing. So just to say, you know, don't assume that your experience or that your your understanding of happy is everybody's understanding of happy or that your, you know, appraisal of what feels good is what everybody appraises as what would feel good. Um, You know, much of the time, these parents that I work with or professionals that, you know, consult with me come to me and they say that they want help with self-regulation and emotional awareness. And they do this because observable behavior, right? So tantrums, meltdowns have become too much for them to handle, right? And they say that I don't know what to do anymore. My kid doesn't have any self-regulation skills. And in that moment, I say, well, have you taught any? Um, and most of the time they haven't because they, you know, they get into this cycle of manage, 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 and then a big behavior happens and then they go, oh God, self-regulation. And then they try to teach self-regulation. Oh, just take a deep breath, go for a walk, whatever coping mechanisms that they're, you know, they're prompting, which are all valid. But they're doing it at the absolute incorrect time, right? The, the worst possible time. It's like if you're, you know, you're peaking in your own anger or sadness or big feelings and somebody tells you to just blank, just, you know, go for a run, just have an apple, just have a coffee, whatever it is that they're telling you to just do in that moment when you are peaking your emotions, it's not helpful, right? You, You need to be able to work through those feelings on your own. You need to have the strategies, you know, leading up to that big feeling to cope properly. And, you know, anytime anybody says, just take a deep breath, Just relax, you're probably gonna get more irritated, right, than if they had just let you be. Um, You know, we may need to, because of all of this, check our ableism a little bit as we, you know, start to open our eyes and start to really see that a mental health crisis looks. Know a little different for each person, and in particular, if you're a neurotypical person, you may not notice the signs of a mental health crisis in your neurotypical or neurodivergent child or client um, as readily because you don't identify with the lived experience on the same level that you would, you know, as a neurotypical person or if you were a neurodivergent person. you know in a population like the autistic population that is at considerable risk of you know dysregulation due to you know nuanced sensory needs communication needs cognitive needs and social needs you know we need to be hyper aware of this and we need to check our ableism and realize okay that our lived experience is not the only viable lived experience um you know we need to we need to be aware of this and it's not something that happens right away. It's just something that we need to keep in mind as we are figuring out, you know, what does my kiddo look like at various level levels of their escalation continuum? What is their, you know, baseline? Um, you know, what indicate, what body signs tell me that my kiddo is happy? Okay, so look at that through the lens of, you know, open-mindedness and not colored by your own lived experience as a neurotypical person and if you're not a neurotypical person if you're a neurodivergent adult also know that your lived experience may be different from your child's you know just because you're both neurodivergent doesn't mean you perceive the world in the same way you know um just as i said you know a sensory avoider and a sensory seeker may need very different things in order to you know be Optimal, or to have, to be, you know, happiest in that moment. Um, so keep that in mind and realize that as you are learning to, you know, identify your kiddo and their various levels of escalation and you know corresponding need in terms of coping skills, you know, you are looking to even the playing field and you are looking to, you know, come in with a, an open, fresh perspective, not colored by you know your lived experience, and that is really, really hard for the majority of us because we like to draw connections. We like to say, well, when I'm feeling anxious, I, whatever it is that I do, twirl my hair. So if I see my kiddo twirling their hair, that signals that they're anxious. When that might not be the case. That could just be a self-stimulatory behavior that they do when they are happy, excited, or worried, right? So we just want to keep that in mind and be careful not to over assign or over you know overconnect our experience with theirs and it's not to say you know of course we're all we're all humans we're all living in this you know world together and experiencing thing, experiencing things alongside each other i'm not taking away from that i'm not saying they're living in this complete alternate reality that's not the case at all it's just to say that we all experience even as neurotypical adults we all experience you know our feelings and emotions a little differently dependent on you know our history our preferences, our needs, um, and all of that is okay, and all of that is something that you should keep in mind, so that you're not over, you know, over analyzing or under analyzing. On the other hand, the behavior patterns, or you know, the things that are observable that might cause you to think, you know, hmm, I wonder if there is, you know, an underlying thought or feeling that I should be looking into, you know, surrounding that behavior. Um, one thing that I want to just really talk about really quickly, because I know I've, I've talked about this a lot in my podcasts before, um, but before I dive into strategies and tips and tricks for um, you know, supporting self-regulation within the autism community, I just want to say this one thing. Tantrums and meltdowns are not the same thing. And so when it comes to how we support and manage through them, we need to be extremely mindful of this. So tantrums, okay? A purposeful attempt to communicate a need that is unmet, okay? The perfect opportunity to work on sort of a more reactive and adaptive coping skill. Okay? It can be a learning moment. A tantrum is something that a kid is doing, I'm not going to say on purpose, um, Because I think that kind of implies manipulation, and it's not that. It is it is a conscious act that they are doing as a way to communicate something to you in a way that they think is going to work, and it's not malicious and it's not manipulative. It is based on learning history. They've done it before, and it's worked. Therefore, it might work again. Okay, so that's why it's a good learning moment. So even if the behavior looks really big and it's you know an epic, let's say a three major tantrum, you know maybe you have a ten year old who has epic tantrums too. If it is something that is conscious, they are communicating something to you and you can work on a sort of more adaptive form of communication um, in a way that is respectful, you know, empathetic, validating their feelings. Um, If it is a meltdown, okay, a meltdown is not conscious it is not on purpose and and i i I hesitate to make the distinction on purpose not on purpose when it comes to tantrums and meltdowns just for the reason i already said which is that i don't want to paint the picture that a tantrum is manipulative um or malicious because that's not the case but i think one is intentional and one is not intentional okay Um, and one is the result of lived experience and this behavior having worked in another setting and one is the result of, you know, um, I, I like to think of it as, you know, a meltdown is a system shutdown, okay? It is a sign that we need way more proactive, adaptive coping skills as opposed to, you know, a tantrum, which is a really good opportunity for us to prompt more reactive and adaptive skills, okay? So meltdowns mean you want more proactive strategies, okay? Tantrums are an opportunity, a learning moment, okay? So you can go in with a reactive strategy for teaching a more adaptive way to communicate. In all cases, proactive strategies are going to be your go-to, but the distinction is that in the case of a meltdown, you don't want to start to go in and negotiate and teach and reason because, like I said, it's a system shutdown, if you're having a lot of meltdowns, you want to look at strictly, you know, your proactive strategies for regulation, you know, filling that power bucket, filling that love and connection bucket, all of those metaphorical things that we love to talk about. Um, and I will talk about more strategies as we sort of move into this episode a little more. Um, but I did want to say that, and I did want to just be very clear um, that a meltdown and a tantrum are not the same thing. In particular, in, you know, the autism population, sensory meltdowns are a real thing, Um they are you know a system shutdown they are they are not a moment to punish they are not a moment to try to reason they are a moment just to be present hold space connect and follow the lead of your kiddo or your client um the only other thing i'll say before i really just you know could go on a tangent in this in this area for like the rest of my life um if it's a tantrum or a meltdown we are never going to physical prompt we are never going to prompt follow through that is not the kind of learning moment it is. When I say a tantrum is an opportunity to practice proactive, sorry, not proactive, um, adaptive and reactive skills, I mean that we can shape, you know, we can shape the behavior into something a little bit better. We don't do that when it's at peak, okay? We do that once they start to come down a little bit. We never, never, right? We never teach when a kid is peaking, but A tantrum still provides an opportunity in the debrief or in the coming down for us to, you know, redirect to more, you know, adaptive coping mechanisms versus a meltdown, which is not going to be, there's no learning to be done there. There is, all there is to do is to analyze what's going on in the environment and support them and try to think proactively about what you can do to make sure that this kind of, you know, overflow or this volcanic eruption doesn't happen again, or if it does happen again, that you're better positioned to manage it. Okay. So tantrums are a learning moment. Meltdowns are not a learning moment. Neither of them are going to be a learning moment at peak moment of escalation. Okay. So yes, you can learn from a tantrum. No, you cannot learn from a tantrum at peak escalation. And that's really important. Okay. Now let's get into it. So the pursuit of self-regulation is supported by science. Okay. In terms of theories or methodologies with known efficacy um, in an ESD population, you know, there are I won't say tons. There are some, um, you know, there's ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. I am not an expert in ACT by any means, um, but I have done enough research to know that it does align very closely with the kinds of things I studied in, you know, my counseling psych program. So um, because of that, I quite like it in that it is it is category, it's kind of this weird discipline where um, you know, mental health therapists will categorize it as a psychotherapy um, and behavior analysts will sort of classify it as a behavior science. Both are qualified to do it so long as they have the right training and experience. Um, the reason I think it appeals to behavior analysts is because it's quite systematic um, and there's a process, and I think behavior analysts tend to like that. Um, the reason psychotherapists like it, I mean, and this is just me spitballing here, um, but based on my training is because it is holistic, okay? It talks about thoughts and values and and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that's, that's all I'll say about that. Um, the other thing that's relevant to self-regulation and teaching self-regulation is you know, the idea of trauma-informed care, um, you know, guiding principles that can and should be adopted, um, adapted, adopted, um, and incorporated in everything, right? From therapy to education, being trauma-informed is just the way we're moving in life. Um, and I think that's great. And I think that is really, really beneficial for teaching self-regulation. Um, you know, in this view, we're looking at trauma as, you know, very nuanced. We're recognizing that it is in particular for, you know, the neurodivergent population. Um, it plays a vital role in their ability to learn and to thrive. And we cannot separate a person from his or her lived experience as a result of that. We just need to be trauma informed. And it's not really enough to say that I just simply don't know about trauma. So I'm not trauma informed. We're moving in the direction of everybody needing to be trauma informed in order to pursue mental health self-regulation the goods. Um, okay. So, you know, the other, the last thing is, and if you've been around on my podcast, um, you know, for a while, you already know that I really love function-based cognitive behavior therapy. Um, the trick is I actually, I, I won't say I love it. I'll say I know a lot about it. I've studied it. I did my thesis on trauma, uh, trauma on FBCBT, um, function-based cognitive behavior therapy. What it is, is basically the meeting point of cognitive behavior therapy and function-based intervention, which is what we do, um, in behavior science. So why I like it, why I initially really liked it is, because it solidified, you know, those core concepts relating to the meaning or the function behind a behavior and brought it together with more, you know, holistic, thought-based concepts that sort of were derived from cognitive behavior therapy, where you're thinking about, you know, how your thoughts impact your behavior and whether they bring, you know, whether they are helpful or unhelpful, adaptive or, um, you know, not adaptive. Um, okay, I will not go into much more detail about FB, CBT, um, because you know I could talk about that forever. Um, And I am actually finding myself pivoting away from it a little bit. Um, Although, you know, I feel like everything that I do leaves, you know, a couple breadcrumbs behind, and I kind of bring them together and create this, you know, holistic thing. Anyway, I digress. I could talk about that for years too. Um, At the core of all these approaches, right? We're looking at the intention of building a toolbox of coping mechanisms. And we're doing so only after the person has a sound understanding of their emotions. So their value, in my opinion, and this is for all of you know the, the, the you know, methodologies that I just described, um, their value is in understanding that you learn about your brain, your thoughts, your symptoms before you try to change them in an autistic population, we follow the same formula, right? And we individualize based on the child's need. For example, are they vocal or non-vocal? Do they have emerging receptive language? Is their strength domain, you know, derived relations, um, imitation, whatever, right? Whatever their strength domain is, we take that and we use that as a way to teach self-regulation. The process usually looks like this, at least when I do it. And this is a loosely based around the formula that we would use in cognitive behavior therapy, because I quite like it, Um, but it's also, you know, quite applicable across sort of a broad domain, a a broad variety of therapeutic strategies. and methodologies, let's say. So step one is going to be assessing the needs and skill gaps, right? So what do I need to teach? Like what skills do I have? What skills do I need to build? So the first thing you need to do is say, where am I right now in skills? You know, am I starting at ground zero? Do I have, you know, nobody has zero skills. Everybody has some. Um, what are they? Um, you know, they might be, you know, arguably, um, you know, introductory skills. They might be identifying, you know, happy, sad silly, you know, they might be, you know, more intermediate skills. Um, and when I say, you know, intro, intermediate, advanced, like I'm just thinking about like a hierarchy here and I'm not, I'm not meaning to, you know, assign value-based judgments around it. It's not like that there. I'm sure there are adults who probably struggle to identify, you know, happy, mad, silly, or whatever. Um, and that's fine. Um, but I think you need to know where you are in order to know where you're going to go. So that's going to be step one assess your needs. Step two is going to be teaching those missing pieces, right? Filling in the gaps, the skills, the habits, okay? So first we assess, then we teach. The third is going to be applying, right? Applying what we learned, what we taught in a way that changes behavior patterns. Because it's one thing, it's one thing to, you know, to assess yourself. Let's because you could do self reflection too, right? Self assessment. So you assess and then let's say you teach, maybe you teach yourself, maybe you teach your kid. That's great. That's two really important things. That means nothing if you can't then apply that knowledge to yield behavior change. Okay. It doesn't matter if I, you know, know the formulas to do my taxes. If I can't apply that to actually doing my taxes, it's not going to yield any positive outcomes. There won't be any observable change. My quality of life will not improve so that's the third step is applying that information that knowledge in a way that yields behavior change okay we're gonna do this slowly we're gonna do this systematically um the fourth step is you know reflecting on the gains so you know where was i when i started what does my assessment say at the end um and then making a plan to generalize and carry forward or move you know those skills from you know emergent to mastered and maintained over time. Um, Those are the four steps. And those are really the four steps if you want to do any kind of, you know, teaching to yourself. And this is in particular, you know, applicable if, you know, you're looking for behavior change with respect to self-regulation. The one thing I always tell my neurodivergent kids, um, well, I tell the families of the neurodivergent kids is, you know, and this is with or without mental health needs, is that you need to learn about your brain. You need to learn about your child's brain, how it's wired, what makes it tick. Because if you think back to the steps, you know, you're going to assess, you're going to teach, apply, and then, you know, make a plan to move forward. You can't do any of those things if you don't truly understand, you know, the the way that the brain acquires, processes, and applies information. So understanding the way the brain works is often the missing piece when it comes to, you know, why just any old curriculum on self-regulation isn't gonna fit the bill. Because if you don't understand how your kid's brain processes information, how your brain processes information, you're not gonna be able to apply, you know, this cookie-cutter formula to your kid and just train and hope and just expect that it's gonna stick. It's not. It needs to be, you know, you need to speak their language. So when it comes to neurodivergent folks, you know, your autistic kids, what this means is number one, you need to have a plan how you're going to teach it. So you need to take what you know about how their brain works, their strengths, their needs, their, you know, preferred subject matter, areas of interest, all of that, have a plan, and have a measurable way to assess that. So have your plan and then know how you're going to assess whether it actually worked so you avoid a situation where you are just training and hoping that it sticks, okay? So let's say, for example, my goal is to teach my child to label his emotions. This will be achieved when I see him or her, you know, spontaneously label, let's say, three emotions without, you know, cueing or priming um, or pre-teaching or, you know, spontaneously, meaning unprompted. That's the first thing I want you guys to know. So you need to have a plan. You need to have a way to measure when you get there. It's not enough to just say, I'm going to teach my kid about their emotions. You need to be specific and you need to say, I'm going to teach my kid about their emotions such that, such that what? Such that they can identify, you know, three faces that I make that relate to an emotion and tell me accurately, you know, what they are. Um, The second thing, know how to teach your child, okay? So you have a goal or a plan. You have a way to assess it. So you have a such that blah, 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 blah goal such that they can blah, 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 right? That's the outcome. But how? How do I teach it? So they need to you know, you need to know how you're going to instruct your kiddo, okay? And this is going to be for a neurodivergent kid or a neurotypical kid, but in particular, because their neurodivergent brain is so nuanced and it's wired differently than the neurotypical brain, you need to have a really good plan and winging it is not one that I advise, okay? So how do you do it, right? You want to use evidence-based practices for instruction. This is vital, okay? And this is the missing piece for, you know, a lot of mental health therapists who try to work in the autistic population and they try to, you know, I don't wanna say organically teach, but they try to kind of just teach as they normally would in a neurotypical population. Let's say talk therapy or following, you know, following the person's lead and, and letting them lead the way. That's not necessarily going to work in a neurodivergent population. And, you know, maybe it will, and that's cool, but you certainly can't default to it without having assessed the variables. Involved in how this individual learns. My recommendation is to stick to evidence based practices when it comes to teaching. What does that mean? It means the same way you would teach reading, you want to teach self regulation, emotional recognition, you know, coping mechanisms. The same way you would teach, um, you know, math, you want to teach, you know, your, your coping skills, your mindfulness, your positive affirmations, whatever it is that you're teaching. You want to be using the same kinds of strategies consistently across all teaching and and this is the piece that is often missed when you know we just you know well we're going to have a mindfulness lesson today and i'm going to read a book about mindfulness we're all going to share our feelings and then we're going to move on with our day well that's not going to yield any positive change probably maybe it will, but that alone for most of my clients isn't going to fit the bill. That's going to be an experience that they were a part of, maybe enriched by, maybe not, but it's not going to be systematic enough to shape, you know, the change that they need in order to demonstrate new skills. Um, That can be a great way to pre-teach, you know, you're going to You're gonna have a lesson, you're gonna read a story, you're gonna share your feelings, that's awesome. That is all priming, you know, that sets the tone for the lesson. But what specifically and systematically are you going to do to ensure that your kiddo understands these core components? You know, are you gonna target three emotions after you read a story and, you know, practice labeling them in a story? Are you going to practice, you know, seeing them or identifying them in each other? Are you going to role play? What exactly are you going to do to ensure that whatever your goal is, is, you know, working towards, you know, that outcome that, you know, as demonstrated by or that, you know, that measurable, you know, outcome that we've isolated initially. Um, Here's some things that I want you to remember. And I promise I won't go too much longer because I know I could ramble about this for years and years. These are the things you're going to want to remember when it comes to mental health supports and self-regulation for your neurodivergent kid. Okay, spoiler, this is going to be perfectly valid for a neurotypical kid too. So here's what I want you to do. Number one, stick to concrete examples. They're important because emotions are relative terms and frankly, extremely abstract, okay? Make emotions concrete. How do you do that? There are a couple different ways. So two ways that I really like to do it. One, assign colors, okay? I love to classify by color. A lot of curriculums do this. You don't need a fancy curriculum to assign emotions by color, okay? Let's say you have red as one color yellow as another color, and green, okay? So let's say you're just going to stick with three colors because it's nice and, you know, compact. You don't want to overwhelm your kid. So your red emotions, they're your peak emotions, okay? The ones that feel really big and fiery inside. Anger, you know, rage, extreme anxiety. Um, Then let's say you have your yellow emotions, okay? So maybe that's worry, maybe that's sillies or excitement, um, maybe that's fear, okay? And this is all going to be individualized based on kiddo, right? Or yourself. Um, And then there's green, right? There's your green emotions. And what are these going to be? Well, it really depends. Um, Content, um, calm, happy, neutral, or even just regulated, okay? So you're going to be able to use these colors as a way of classifying emotions, and you're doing so in a way where you're not judging any of them. You're not saying there are good emotions and bad emotions. You are simply saying, you know, these are one kind of emotion, red. These are another kind, yellow. These are another kind, green. Okay. And this will help you in a lot of ways when it comes to teaching, you know, you can then sort your emotions into different colors. You can then, you know, use that as a cue for identifying, you know, what feeling you're having right now. You might just have a piece of paper with your red, yellow, and green. And you know, once they understand which feelings are associated with each, they can use it kind of like a thermometer or like a, you know, temperature you know tracker um, where they identify you know what kind of feeling they're feeling and that can be really helpful to make it you know something a little abstract more concrete the second thing assigning numbers so you can do both colors and numbers or you can do just colors or just numbers exactly the same way you would with your you know colors um you're going to assign a number to each feeling or each cluster of feelings so the way i like to do it is kind of like an escalation continuum i call it but there are many ways so you could do a number line straight across you know one two three four five and you could have you know all the emotions associated with each usually i would have one be my you know lower level, like calm, baseline, neutral-ish emotions. And I would have it slowly increase up to the highest point on my number scale would be my peak, really fiery feelings, big feelings. Um, That could be five, that could be 10. If you're working with a teenager or an older kid, you know, they may have a very nuanced scale. Um, That's perfectly fine. The other way you can do it, instead of a number line straight across, you can do it like this, right? So an actual escalation mountain, okay? And the reason I like this as a visual is that it allows you to map out your escalation continuum. So like, let's say one, two, three, four, up here to five, and then it allows you to also paint the picture of how you regulate on the other side. So, you know, one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. The only word of caution I'll say with that is that escalation and um, regulation or, you know, dysregulation and regulation are not necessarily linear. Um, So you may find that it's helpful to, to view your, you know, escalation mountain or escalation continuum like this. And then also, you know, ensure that in your teaching, you're talking about the fact that it's okay to go from... Um, you know, one, three, two, three, two, four, you know, four, five, five, three, whatever it is, right? And, and that's okay. And I think it's important, especially for our concrete learners to know that, you know, I mean, like, one thing, you know, we know about our autistic kids is they can be extremely linear, they can be extremely black and white, if you tell them something, you know, they'll take that very literally. And we need to be mindful of that so that we are not inadvertently sending the wrong message. Okay. So what we can say to them in that situation is, you know, sometimes, you know, our emotions are are linear or they go in order one, two, three, four, five, and then we peak. And sometimes we skip count, you know, we might go, we might start at a level two, two, four, and then up to five and then down to, you know, down to two, down to one. Essentially, we are letting them know, that it won't always be this linear progression, okay? It may be, you know, skip counting, counting by twos, counting by threes, however you want to make this more concrete for them so that they know, not to necessarily expect that, you know, if you're gonna get angry, it's always gonna feel like a one, two, three, four, five, or one to 10 gradual escalation, you know? If if we know anything, you know, about being human is that most of us can go from zero to 100 in, you know, about three seconds under the right circumstances. so that's really important. Um, you then use this information, right? These colors or or these numbers scales um, as a way to anchor what you're learning. So you turn this idea into a visual, okay? Like I talked about with you know your your, your temperature rating scale or you know your your escalation mountain or volcano if you like that idea better. Um, You use this to anchor your learning and you return to it, right? You would use this visual that you create along with your kiddo as part of your learning experience to anchor your knowledge. You return to it as you add complexity to what you're teaching. So it always starts and ends with this, you know, visual and it's your anchor and you slowly add on more and more and more. Okay, so the key is to use the visual consistently. You add on as you make, you know, your content more complicated. The knowledge layers on so that you're never just brain dumping, you know, all at once. You're slowly layering, you know, systematically these pieces of information that fit together, you know, kind of like a puzzle. Um, But you're always bringing it back to this original visual or this original anchor um, for learning. This is important for a number of reasons. I could talk about that forever, um, but I will leave you with that so that I do not, you know, bore you. Um, A couple more things that I will say just before I finish um, you want to teach awareness first so before you start looking at coping skills oh my kid has no coping skills you know they go from zero to 100 you know I tell them no they you know f- flip their lid you know they have all these really intense behaviors before you start trying to address those behaviors with coping skills you need to teach awareness okay how do you do this it depends on the kid the most important thing is that they number one know how to you know how to identify the emotions. Some are going to do that, you know, with speech, with, you know, vocally. Some of them are going to do it non-vocally and that is perfectly acceptable. There are many ways to assess awareness that don't involve vocal output. Um, You know, receptive language is a great way to do it. Um, You know, it might be something like sorting. You know, you might sort faces into their categories. Their categories might be based on whatever framework you used to assign, you know, group them together so maybe you're going to sort your green emotions into a green bin or you're going to you know sort your level three emotions together and and really get that understanding okay where you are you know understanding each of these emotions and you're going to start very very you know basic and very very introductory where maybe you only have one emotion from each feeling or maybe you have 10 different happy you know examples and you sort all of them into you know your green or your level one Maybe you have 20 different, you know, red or, you know, um, level three feelings, or maybe you just have 20 different anger feelings. And it's important to know the difference because there could be up to 20, 30, 40 feelings that all, you know, qualify as red based on your categorization, right? Maybe you have rage, anger, irritability. You know, you could be extremely complex if you're dealing with a teenager, or you could be extremely, you know, um, introductory if you're dealing with a little one. So it's important to know that you know, this can either begin with sorting, you know, 30 examples of happy into green, or this can start with, you know, looking at all of the possible green emotions depending on your kid's level. And that is why assessing and individualizing is going to be vital. So awareness, again, can be taught through sorting, okay? It doesn't have to be taught through expressive language, which for some of our kids is not going to be a strength domain and might be too difficult or, you know, just not motivating enough for them. Um, You can sort scenes or situations, okay? You can label, so you can, of course, use expressive language, um, you know, augmentative or speech, um, you know, gestures, point, all of that can be incorporated. Um, you can do it in books, you know, you can have them label it in themselves or express it or show it in themselves. Um, and most importantly, you want to model it, right? You want to always be the person who's modeling the feelings for them in the natural environment, not just in your, you know, quote unquote, teaching blocks. Um. You want to teach across verbal operants, okay? That is very specifically behavioral. So let me unpack that for you. It is not enough if for your kid to just be able to, you know, receptively identify a feeling. You know, for example, you say, can you show me which monkey is feeling sad? And they can show you. That's great. That's an awesome start. They also have to be able to do other things, you know, to demonstrate understanding and awareness of, you know, let's say sad is a concept. So Um, You know, you might say, you know, oh, look at that monkey he's feeling. And then they would say sad. So you're right. He is feeling sad. Um, And then, you know, you might say, can you show me sad? Um, And they might show you sad. And then, you know, you might say, "Um, how are you feeling? And then they might say sad. So I did digress a little bit from strictly verbal operants, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say here. So teaching across the verbal operants um, specifically behaviorally means, um, you know, tacting interverbals, echoics, so um, imitation. Um, but what I want you to do is take that and I also want you to take it a step further where it's, you know, also modeling, you know, show me um, happy, sad whatever it is. So you're teaching, I won't even say teaching across verbal operands, although that is a piece of it. I'll say you're teaching across domains. Okay. So receptively, they demonstrate understanding, expressively, they demonstrate understanding, um, in terms of interverbals or fill in the blanks or conversationally, they, you know, demonstrate knowledge and understanding. Um, and all of that. Okay, so for preverbal or for non-vocal, um, you're just going to lean on receptive language, visual performance, um, you know, the, the aspects of, you know, domains of development that don't require um, speech output. It's certainly um, going to work just fine. Um, of course, if they do have a modality of communication, whether it's pecs, whether it's sign, um, you know, incorporate that modality so that they are then able to, you know, functionally, meaningfully um, communicate whatever they're learning to you in a way that actually brings them closer to being able to communicate um, effectively in whatever modality it is. Um, All right, the next one, so once you have accuracy, right, in awareness of emotions, I want you to move into coping skills. So this is where you pair an emotion with a possible strategy for overcoming it. So let's say you have a really good, solid understanding of all of the feelings that fit into each of your categories. So whether it's your red, green, yellow, whether it's your, you know, one to five hierarchy or your mountain, your volcano, whatever it is, you have a really good understanding. You know, you can say, um, you can say, um, you know, that you... Hey, sorry to interrupt your hyper focus, but I just had to come on and give you guys a secret promo code that is only for listeners of my podcast. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to my website, magnificentminds.ca. You're going to click workshop and resources. Once you navigate through all of the cool resources there, like virtual classes, guidebooks, assessments, all kinds of good stuff. You're going to click view more. When you get to the checkout page of whatever you want to buy, you're going to put in the promo code secret. It's going to give you a secret discount and it's only for my podcast subscribers. So enjoy and let me know how you like it. So once you have a strategy, right, Um, you know, you, you then pair it with those those feelings or those levels that you've already sort of made, you know, solidified in terms of knowledge and you bring it into that anchor that you've already used, right? So you might have your escalation continuum or, you know, your, your number line or your hierarchy or however you've laid it out in a concrete way. And you're then going to say, okay, if I'm, you know, feeling level one, um, you know, do I want to stay there? Do I want to stay level one? If I do, what are some things that are going to keep me at level one? Here are some, you know, these are your proactive strategies, okay? If I'm at a level two, you know, I don't really want to climb up, right? I don't want to become more escalated. Um, I want to either, you know, stay at a level two or maybe I even want to go back down to a level one so that I'm a little calmer. What are some strategies that I can then use to go from level two to level one? What if I find myself at a level five, you know, what are some strategies that I might be able to, to use to help me climb down that ladder, that mountain. Um, and I will say that oftentimes at a level five, that's not a prime time for using coping mechanisms. And real, the real magic happens when, you know, we can start to use our strategies at our lower levels of escalation so that we avoid getting to that point of level five. Once we're at a level five, it's often the case that we just need to sort of sit in our feelings and just sort of ride it out. Um, but ultimately, we can be very proactive about, you know, giving you know, the strategies that are going to be able to um, help us stay wherever we want to be, wherever that's comfortable for us. Um, So, you know, we we might use, you know, we might use a stepladder approach, right, where we practice these strategies that we've paired with each various level. We practice them when we're calm first. And then maybe we practice them when we're just a little bit escalated. And then, you know, maybe we practice them when we're a little more escalated. And we're really just taking these small baby steps towards practicing it in various levels on our escalation continuum so that it becomes mastered at every step. One of the things that parents miss the most, and teachers, honestly, even therapists miss the most in teaching self-reg skills, is that they teach the skills when someone is calm, and then they wonder why they can't access it when they're dysregulated, or whether any other state on that continuum, right? So that is why that framework derived from, you know, CBT, is so important because it's where we start experimenting in a way that yields behavior change, okay? We have to practice these coping skills at all of the levels of escalation that we will face in our lives in order to be able to consider them mastered, right? If I've never practiced this strategy when I'm at a level three and then I get to a level three and you know I need to call on it, how will I, right? We can't, we need to slowly build that capacity to access those skills. Um, in you know, a more realistic, novel, um, unelicited and natural way. The only way to do this is the stepladder approach where we are, not to say we're eliciting big feelings, but we are being mindful that in order to be able to use a skill, excuse me, at each level of escalation, we need to have practiced it before at that level, okay? Otherwise, it's a brand new skill. Okay, me at level one is not the same human being as me at level five. I am a different person, and I need to master it at each of those levels individually. And that is so so key and so so crucial. The next thing, the fourth thing, and this is, I promise you, the last thing, I want you to talk to your kids about the hand model of the brain. And this is a model that comes from Dan Siegel. It's brilliant. I will not get into it with you right now, because as I said, I'm recording this both on a podcast and for a YouTube video. And it's just, I'm not going to do it justice for the YouTube, uh, sorry, for the the podcast, because you really need the hand. So, you know, you really need your hand to be able to demonstrate this. But what I want you to do is look up the hand model of the brain, and I want you to use that in working with your kids as a way to explain why we can learn a skill at, you know, calm, baseline, level one, green, however you want to quantify it, and it won't necessarily translate To you know when we're heightened, you know our kids might get frustrated. You know I got so mad I just couldn't use my coping skills. We don't want to punish them for that, okay? Um, We want them to know that that is a normal thing. Oh my goodness! Can you guys hear my kids? It's lockdown, lockdown in Ontario, and they're downstairs. Um, Anyway, um, I digress. They are fine. I am fine. I mean, I'm not fine. None of us are fine, but we're fine. Um, anyway, so yes, look up the hand model of the brain. It is super, super important. It's also super helpful for you in understanding, you know, how the brain works in the state of escalation. Um, and essentially, the long and short of it is just that you know, you've got two parts of your brain: the logical and the feeling part of your brain. And when you're in peak escalation, the feeling part of your brain, that fight or flight, that reactive side of you, takes over, and your logical brain, or you know, your thinking brain, can't access those coping mechanisms that you learned yesterday in therapy. Um, And that is why it's so hard to, you know, apply them consistently and why it's so important to take that stepladder approach. All right. That's all I got for you. I could keep going. Oh my goodness. I'm looking at my notes. I literally have five more pages. Okay. This is going to be another episode. This is going to be another YouTube video. Come back if you liked it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science Drives, Wellness Steers. It's been amazing hanging out, and I am so grateful for your willingness to let me in. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating and share, share, share. Until next time, stay well, stay grounded, and keep letting science drive your habits while you let the pursuit of wellness and balance steer you in the right direction. Okay, today we're going to talk a little bit about mindfulness meditation, and yoga. And specifically, we're gonna talk about, you know, mindfulness and meditation and yoga from the perspective of how it's beneficial for supporting self-regulation in ourselves, but specifically, you know, in our kids. So how do we use principles of mindfulness? You know, using strategies of yoga and meditation to pursue self-awareness and self-regulation in a way that helps us You know, regulate our emotions, respond to stress, generally, you know, optimize our well-being and you know, all, all that good stuff that we're you know always trying to optimize. How do we do that? So the first thing that I want to talk about is the distinction, right? What is the distinction between mindfulness, meditation? In yoga, so mindfulness, as I understand it, is a you know it's a it's a therapeutic approach. It is a set of beliefs. It is an approach that has us really, simply put, bring our attention to the present moment. So get out of our heads. Get out of the ifs. You know the what ifs. The you know the, that that sort of cycle of you know, thought that we tend to fall into either as kids or as grown-ups, get out of the worries, get out of all of those, you know, those sort of internal contingency plans that we make where we think, okay, if this happens, then this might happen. And we sort of play out all of these contingencies in our head. Instead of that, you know, the answer to that is mindfulness where, you know, we're really being asked to tune in, to be present in the moment and really just be here and 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 now right that's mindfulness and meditation is a strategy of mindfulness okay so it's it's a an application of mindfulness where we you know quiet the mind so to speak and we bring our attention to the present moment in a number of different ways there are you know guided meditations that Guide us through words, through the different things we should be bringing our attention to. Whether it's a body scan where we are bringing our attention to the various parts of our body and tuning in to the sensory experiences that each one, you know, creates and offers us, or whether that is a more silent meditation where we are encouraging, you know our thoughts just to really quiet and to just be in the present moment. That second one can be a little more challenging in particular for our kids, but for a lot of grown-ups too for me, you know, for a lot of, you know, grown-ups who identify with, you know, the idea that there's just too many tabs open in their mind all the time, the idea of quiet meditation can be really really difficult and really almost off-putting, you know? How could I possibly close all those tabs that are in my mind, you know? The tab that reminds me of all the chores I need to do in my home, the tab that reminds me of my work to-do list, you know? The tab that reminds me of all of the things my kids need, my partner needs, I need, you know, my self-care tab. There's all these tabs always open, and it's really important that we learn how to, you know, we not necessarily close every single tab, but certainly prioritize which tabs need to be open at what times and be able to shift or focus from one to the other without, you know, trying to hold all of these ideas and thoughts in our head. You know, busy mind is, you know, the analogy that comes to mind where you just feel like your mind is busy. You know, even when you're not stressed, your mind is busy, there's too many tabs open. Okay, so, you know, that's sort of in a nutshell meditation and it is, of course, a much bigger, deeper practice with, you know, roots in in different philosophies and all of that, but I think for the purpose of understanding the distinction between mindfulness and meditation, suffice to say that meditation is a way that you can pursue mindfulness, okay? Then there's yoga, right? We've heard about yoga, we know yoga. Yoga is moving, moving your body, movement, right? But did you know that part of yoga also includes, you know, Practices of medica- meditation. Um, yoga is not just moving your body. It's actually an approach to life. It's actually a philosophy that guides. You know, it's not just about you know doing these different positions that allow your body to stretch. It's also about you know breathing techniques, which also relates to meditation. It's also about you know the philosophies and values that govern your life. You know, all of these different things come together to create yoga, the philosophies of yoga. And yes, it is movement and it is, you know, stretching and, you know, tuning into your body, but it is also an application of mindfulness because it allows you to be present in the moment. It encourages you to tune in, to listen to your body, to feel your body and to move in a way that supports self-regulation and stress management. Yoga as a philosophy also encourages mindfulness practices like meditation because that is one of the ways that we, you know, pursue balanced living, right? It's one of the ways that we tune inward is by not just tuning into our body, strictly speaking, how it moves, but also tuning into our mind and how our mind moves and how the gears turn in our mind and how our thoughts can play a role in how those gears turn. I get it. It's very, it's very nuanced, right? And, and when I do like a very in a nutshell version of you know mindfulness versus meditation versus, versus yoga, I'm obviously only scratching the surface. But all of this just to say that they are different, but they are related, right? So yoga and meditation can both be practices that fall under mindfulness as a, you know, a practice and as an application, as a therapeutic modality. This is important because it's important for us to know, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? Why is is mindfulness important? You know, why is yoga related to mindfulness? How is meditation also, you know, related to mindfulness? And maybe even how do yoga and meditation fit together to create this sort of lifestyle shift that is really at the core of, you know, yoga as a philosophy, not just as a exercise. Okay. So that's the distinction, that's the similarities, that's the in a nutshell. Now let's talk about some of the benefits, okay? What are the benefits of mindfulness, of meditation, and of yoga? And a lot of the benefits of all three of these overlap because like I said, right, they all fit together to create this, you know, really nice comprehensive way to address your body and all of its moving parts and your mind and all of its moving parts course, you can extrapolate what works for you. If for you, you know, yoga is just too out there, that's totally fine. If meditation is just too out there, that's okay. But if to you, it really resonates, you can do one, you can do both. And all of that is a pursuit of mindfulness. So what are some of the benefits of mindfulness, not just for us, but for our kids? Okay. So mindfulness and you know, more specifically, I will unpack yoga and meditation as an application of mindfulness has been linked to optimized learning okay why because when we are when we are getting in tune with the way our body works and the way our mind works right i said you know what makes our body tick what makes our mind tick right these are some of the pursuits of meditation and yoga when we learn about how our body and our mind work, that leads to optimized learning because we become in tune. We become aware of our needs. We become able to regulate, you know, our arousal levels, our self-regulation. Not only that, but it flips that switch right to regulation. And once we are regulated, we already know we learn better. So if our kids, you know, if we practice meditation and yoga on a regular basis as a means to pursuing optimized learning, we know that there is benefit here, okay? The next thing that's really important about, you know, outcomes of meditation and yoga is empowerment, right? It gives us skills to take back control over our body and our mind. We aren't passive, you know, passive participants in our life. We are active participants in our life and meditation and yoga provide us with concrete strategies to demonstrate, you know, that we have the power to, you know, change how our body feels, to, you know, build energy, to build tolerance, to build, you know, all of these things that that you know we we strive to build through yoga and meditation. Obviously on the other hand as well, right? Not just with your body, but giving us power and empowerment over our thoughts, you know, knowing that we can turn on or off certain thoughts, you know, that we can focus and shift our attention to a particular kind of meditation, tune in to the way that our body feels. All of these different things or you know goals that would be pursued in meditation. Okay. The next thing, so developing self-advocacy skills. So both meditation and yoga, again, focusing on turning, you know, tuning inward, right, the body and the mind, that allows us to develop self-advocacy skills. Why? Because when we're in touch with our body and how it responds to stress, to joy, to all of these, you know, these emotions and feelings that we have we then you know have that capacity to be self-aware to identify it and then link it with what we need in terms of a coping mechanism. So I always say to parents, you know, we can't practice and develop coping mechanisms before we become self-aware because it's one thing to learn coping mechanisms like say going for a run or doing yoga, but until we recognize the body cues inside of us that say, you know, we need a particular coping mechanism at any given moment, all the coping mechanisms in the world aren't going to do anything if you don't have that self-awareness to know, you know, when you need to apply it. So self-advocacy skills in that I become self-aware and then I can advocate for what I need. You know, I can ask for, you know, whatever it is in the environment that is overstimulating me, the lights to be turned down. I can ask to go for a walk and move my body. I can ask for five minutes to do some breathing. I can, you know, step out of the classroom and, you know, Move my body and take a few deep breaths as I do that. All of these, you know, coping skills, and we need self advocacy, right? We need to be fluent in self advocacy so that we can say, listen, I recognize this need within myself and I'm going to pursue it in the following ways, right? The other thing, of course, is that, you know, meditation and yoga, they normalize mental health needs and priorities. This is super important because oftentimes we talk about body health but we don't talk about you know cognitive or mental health normalizing the need for proactive strategies to manage our you know mental health and stress is really important it's important with our kids and it's important of course you know for us as grown-ups the other piece too is that it normalizes self-care right it normalizes us creating you know as a priority these initiatives or these routines that prioritize both the physical and mental health because we know that, you know, that together creates self-care. The other piece that's really important is that it helps us connect with ourselves and to tune in, right? So, you know, yes, of course, self awareness, but also, you know, the ability to reflect on how a certain situation made us feel. You know, how did I respond in that particular meeting where I became frustrated with my colleague? How did I respond in that particular challenging moment with my child when they were, you know, hitting all my trigger points? So that's self-awareness and that's really important because that again leads to the better use application and you know the routine maintenance of you know coping mechanisms and of course self-regulation the other thing that's really important that i think is often overlooked about meditation and yoga is that it brings awareness to our reflexive behaviors okay what does that mean everything we do is a behavior right it's either something we do with intention Right, or it's something that we do sort of on instinct or you know, reflexively, so it's like a reflex, like when you, know, you tap your knee and your, your sort of leg you know, jumps up, that's a reflex, that's a behavior, but it's not one that you, you know, purposely did, it's just something that your body did. So you know, one of the most common things that we talk about when we're talking about reflexive behaviors is that fight, flight, freeze, and fawn response that we have when we're faced with stress. What does that mean? Well, fight, a fight response is, you know, when you get angry, when you're, you know, you are literally feeling like you want to fight, you know, physically, cognitively, whatever it is. Then, of course, there's flight, right? That's your retreat. You want to get away from the stressor. Then there's freeze, right? So freeze is going to be where you're sort of immobilized, and you know you may be analysis paralysis. You're not sure how to move forward given the stressor that you're encountering. And then fawn, which is a more um, a more recently explored, you know, stress response, where essentially you move into sort of almost like a people pleasing mode, where you know you sort of disregard your own values, your own needs, and you just sort of try your very best not to make waves to avoid confrontation, because historically, you know, those confrontational situations have led to stress. So once we are aware, right, of how our body responds to certain situations from, you know, body cues like, you know, sweating, flushed cheeks, those kinds of things, or even, you know, stiff neck, you know, muscle tension, that kind of thing. And also, you know, mental cognitive cues, right? So like, you know, how how do I perceive certain situations in my mind when I am stressed? Am I, you know, quicker to um, become frustrated by the loud volume of my kiddos who are playing? Am I quicker to jump to conclusions? Am I quicker to default to, you know, um, automatic negative thoughts or cognitive distortions, right? Am I more um, inclined to think black and white, you know, oh, it's either this or it's that without recognizing that gray area. And are any of these, you know, coping mechanisms or adaptive maladaptive strategies linked to levels of escalation? Oftentimes they are, right? Oftentimes when we are regulated and calm, you know, we feel less muscle tension. You know, we are less inclined to jump to cognitive distortions. We are more inclined to see that gray area, right? That, that space in the middle and so yoga and meditation allow us to become self-aware of of all of this through its practices and then of course this leads to better self-regulation the other thing that's important is is that yoga and that meditation allow us provide us opportunities um, to regulate attention and focus right so the whole idea is that through yoga or meditation practices we are being mindful of where focus and attention is right so we are you know taking proactive steps to focus specifically on a particular sequence, you know, a particular flow, poses. Um, You know, we are trying our best to, you know, close the windows on other thoughts that pop into our mind. Through meditation, we are purposely refocusing our attention to whatever it is, you know, we are trying to focus on. And when another thought comes into our mind, you know, we simply let it float in and float out, recognizing that you know we are humans our brains are busy we will have thoughts but that we have that power to redirect to you know whatever particular task we are engaging in this is helpful for us. This is helpful for our kids. Why? Because a lot of the time, you know, kids are told you need to focus, you need to pay attention. Or we are saying to ourselves, why can't I just focus on my work when, you know, my kids are in the background playing or, you know, my office is busy or whatever it is. So these yoga and meditation practices allow us the opportunity to actually practice focus. Okay. Not just beat ourselves up over not being able to focus when the stakes are high, like when we're working or when our kids are in a classroom, but providing Proactive opportunities to practice shifting our attention to one particular thing we are doing. Of course, this also is an application and a pursuit of mindfulness when it comes to, you know, being in the present moment, being in in here and now. Of course, yoga and meditation also support, you know, anxiety and stress management, right? Because through all of the, you know, benefits that I've mentioned already, we have the opportunity to... Become more aware of our stress responses and our anxiety responses. You know, just like when I spoke about the, you know, cognitive distortions we may be engaging in cognitively or the muscle tension we may be feeling, all of these are or at least could be manifestations of our stress and anxiety. So through yoga and through meditation, we're actually able to, you know, really dissect this and not do so in a way that feels clinical, right? Do so in a way that feels like self-care, that feels like we are tuning in and giving ourselves the power and the space to explore the connection between our thoughts and our behaviors. The last thing I think that's really important is that yoga and and meditation allow us the opportunity to practice regulating our behavioral responses, okay? So we we are purposeful, okay? We are present, we are doing things for a reason and we are not acting on autopilot, and well, you know that that at the core is, is what mindfulness is all about: is not doing things on autopilot and instead doing them with intention, right? So meditation, yoga, you know the flows that we do, the positions we flow from one to the next, we do this with intention, and we do this as a way, you know, to regulate our behavioral responses, to you know practice, you know, doing something with intention as opposed to doing something on autopilot. Why is this important? Well, for grown-ups, you know, we have we have agency, we have control over a lot of what we do and through trial and error we have learned you know to regulate a lot of our behavioral responses most of the time at least let's say when we're mostly regulated right sometimes regulating behavioral responses becomes more challenging when we're dysregulated right which is the whole point the whole reason we want to bring ourselves back to mindfulness for our kids regulating behavioral responses is a huge you know goal of child development of of, you know maturing right so it's not just impulse control you know it's It's everything that goes along with, you know, the ability to regulate your behavior in a classroom setting, in the community, you know, in social interactions, in the family, you know, all of these, these, you know, nuanced skills that we really need to practice. And in particular, if you are a kiddo that is neurodivergent, right, or your kiddo is neurodivergent, you know, you have ADHD, you have autism, whatever it is, right, anxiety oppositional defiant disorder, you know, you really need the opportunity to practice regulating your behavior. And what often happens is when we don't purposely pursue, you know, proactive ways to regulate and practice, you know, regulating behavioral responses. And I don't just mean hitting and kicking. I also mean, you know, um, being thoughtful about how we say things and what we say and walking through you know life so to speak with with intention and not being on autopilot then what happens is we misstep right and we break a rule and then we end up facing consequences or punishments because we haven't regulated our behavioral responses so yoga and meditation as an application for kids in particular is going to allow them this opportunity to regulate their behavioral responses if you are a grown-up who never really had you know great mastery over regulating your behavioral responses due to, you know, a myriad of reasons, but, you know, maybe a more difficult childhood um, or even just, you know, limited education when it comes to, you know, self-regulation for yourself, as many of us, you know, didn't have this kind of education available to us as kids, yoga and mindfulness are going to provide you with an opportunity to practice this at whatever level you need to. And so those for me are some of the primary benefits of, you know, meditation and yoga as an application of mindfulness.